Well, good morning again, everybody. Happy to see you all and to be back with you to share what the Lord's been laying on my heart. I do want to thank Steve and Brett for filling in for me for those weeks while we were gone. It's always a blessing to be able to have people to step into this role and preach and teach the Word of God. You know, as you're called into that type of a role, it's interesting to see how the Lord teaches you through that process as well. And it's been funny to me how the Lord has been teaching me so far this year as we've gone through the different sermon series. Um, Obviously, as I said, with the sermon series on rest, many times I am preaching things I'm struggling with or things that the Lord is trying to show me. And it was no different through that. And throughout that series, uh, the Lord impacted me in different ways that I can kind of look back on and, and laugh a little bit. Um, And you know, with that series, of course, we can continue to talk on that and we can speak about how to incorporate different rhythms of rest into our life and what all of that would look like. Um, But as we move on from this, um, I want to reflect just a little bit back on that series as we prepare for our next. You know, as I look back, going through that series, oftentimes I was looking ahead. I was looking towards the future. Um, I wasn't always in the moment. I wasn't always applying, you know, what I was teaching right then and there. It probably had something to do with sandy beaches and warmer weather. (laughs) Probably. But what was funny is when we were there, I was looking back. I was reminiscing. I was grieving of what might have been. Now, don't get me wrong, we definitely made some good memories. We lived up in the present. But it wasn't until this past Monday that I was preparing for this next series, and I was laying things out, and I began to make plans for this summer. And it dawned on me. How often am I living for the future, or am I stuck in the past? How often am I actually present with what's right there in front of me? You know, many times we look to a future vacation or the weekend and a break and and we end up planning things. And we get to that vacation and we're so packed full of different things that we're doing that we don't actually take the time to rest. Or once we're there, we're comparing it to prior vacations or we're looking at, you know, maybe what's back left at the office. You know, that's, it's hard in this type of role, especially to shut your brain off and, and to put that t- stuff aside in order to take a good break. You know, and we all do this, don't we? We cling to the glory days or waiting for tomorrow, but tomorrow never comes. And if you're paying attention, that was two song titles in one sentence. I was pretty proud of that one. But you know, we can get stuck in the past. We can be thinking about what might be in the future, and we can struggle to live in the now. And over this spring, I would like to walk through some minor prophets with us to help us understand the past, present, and future, and how it needs to be handled in our now. Um, Our focus, obviously, can easily get stuck on one of those periods of time for a season, and we need to realize how to have healthier balances in our life. So for today, with the Minor Prophets, I want to start in the book of Nahum. Um, We're going to take probably a week or two break for Easter, and then we're going to continue through the next few books, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Haggai. That should take us through May. And I tell you all of this so that you can kind of be reading ahead, 
perhaps doing some studying uh, each week, maybe reading through these books once because they're shorter books of the Bible. It'd be a good challenge for us, I think. But for today, I want to focus on the first chapter of Nahum. Again, being a minor prophet, you can easily flip right over it. Continue here in, in Nahum chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. <clears throat> the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not Rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many will be cut down and pass away, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment. About you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Father, as we kind of shift gears with our messages, I pray that you would give us open hearts and minds to understand your truths. Help us to reflect in our own lives how these prophets can speak to us even still today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So again, this is a shorter book, um, and I'm not sure, but if you didn't, there was an infograph next to the bulletins. If you want to grab one of those, or I can have some of the kids pass those out if you want, that can kind of be helpful for us in terms of a timeline. Um, A timeline of prophets and the kings and what's kind of going on in the the general area. But you know, with this 
book of Nahum, it's in a certain time period. And it's a shorter book, as I said. Even if you're reading through the Bible through the whole year, you can probably finish this book in a day and move on to the next one and, and not really take time to understand what's being said. Not take time to study what's going on in this book. You know, when's the last time you actually sat and studied this book? This is the first time I'm preaching through it. And I found a lot of different things interesting in terms of the connections that can be made. I always find it interesting how God's word fits together. And once you begin to study, you see some interesting background. So on that infograph, again, it's just kind of a generic timeline of the kings, the prophets, the other powers of the world at the time. And as you go through that, you can see where Nahum is. And it can be difficult to understand the order and what happens when. You can get that easily confused. You know, the first thing that we want to see is with these, we don't always have an exact date of when this is written. It's more of a time period. Um, And it's around 660 to 620-ish BC. The Babylonians come in and, and take over Assyria around 612. So again, it's rough estimates. And when we look at that first verse in the book of Nahum, we see that it is an oracle. It's a vision written for Nineveh. So we see this, this is a prophecy for, for someone other than Israel. Uh, even though throughout the book you're going to have added hope uh, for those in Judah, for those in captivity, kind of interspersed in the verses, in the chapters. But primarily this is written to Nineveh. A couple of things about who this is addressed to. First, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. So this represents all of the Assyrian people. These are the ones that overthrew and took over the northern kingdom. They conquered them, and they were the world power at the time. Second, if you do recall, I have preached on a a different prophet here um, that also prophesied to Nineveh, and that was Jonah. Now, if you're looking on your sheet, you'll see that Jonah happens about a century or so before Nahum. So there's some similarities and differences that are really interesting when you study these two prophets together. And as I read both of those books this week, what stuck out to me the most, I think, was how they both express the character of God. Now, the character of God is going to be our emphasis for today as we look at the first few verses of Nahum that describe God. But you know, when you're reading the prophets, the prophets each impressed a different characteristic of God in their writings. This was kind of their focal points that kind of shape their prophecies a bit. Isaiah saw God's holiness. Jeremiah saw God's judgment. Ezekiel saw a lot of things. But mainly, I think, above all, he saw God's glory. Micah saw God's leadership. Jonah saw God's mercy, and as we'll see with Nahum, he sees God's wrath and anger. And I find it interesting, because of course throughout the writings you can see the other characteristics of God kind of coming out, but the emphasis and how they try to emphasize one characteristic of God and then, and then show that to the people. We oftentimes do the same thing, but it's not really in a healthy way. Right? We, we elevate one characteristic over others thinking that somehow my version of God, my characteristic of God is the best one. It's the correct one. It's the most right. And of course, we emphasize those characteristics that we like. 
But then when those other characteristics are presented to us or we're studying and we see those, it can get tough because it can wreak havoc on theologies that we create. It can make us be defensive in our faith. But you know, I I heard an interesting line this week that was uh, misquoted or misattributed to Walt Whitman that said, be curious, not judgmental. And he said, see, when you're being judgmental, it's because you have everything figured out and you judge everything and everyone based on that. And when we're elevating these characteristics, many times it's coming from that place in our hearts where we know everything and we take this attitude of how we are right. It's a prideful attitude where our lives are closely resembling that of the Pharisees and as we will see, the Assyrians. But when it comes to the attributes and the characteristics of God, we have to understand them together and rightly. It's not a simple task, but it's one that I think that the prophets express well, and we want to pay attention to that. So a practical exercise for us. As we go through the book of Nahum, read it alongside of the book of Jonah. That way we'll be able to see uh, the differences and the similarities. You know, for, if we struggle with those types of things where we're elevating one characteristic, like God is love, or maybe it's a hellfire brimstone kind of day for us, when we're elevating those types of conver- um, those characteristics, read these two books side by side. And you're going to be able to see the past, the present, and the future. You're going to see how the differences that a generation or two can bring this culture, this society, this people group. You'll be able to look at the present and see how the Assyrians are now and then look to the future to see what God says is going to happen to them. You know, when you read them side by side, you're going to be able to see God being merciful in the book of Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah replies to God, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So we can see God not giving Nineveh what they deserve. And perhaps we can read that and think, but wait a minute, this is the God of the Old Testament. Isn't he supposed to be angry all the time? Isn't he killing pagans left and right? What gives? Kind of blows that perception out of the water a little bit. And then you read something like Nahum and you see his wrath, you see his anger. Just in case you're on that kick of God is nothing but love and he's my best friend. I mean, I can't remember the last time I heard a song about God's anger on Caleb. But yet, it's still an attribute of God. It's still something that we overlook many times. See, we tend to limit God to make him more palatable to ourselves, put him in our own boxes that we like. And you could be a God is love or a hellfire brimstone type of Christian. Personally, I think you need an understanding of all of these characteristics just to begin to scratch the surface of knowing God. But we do have both of these books to help instruct us. So let's look at these first few verses to see how Nahum is describing God. Looking at verse two, he says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. So who likes God to be like this? Anybody? I do for two reasons. First reason, this shows an obvious sign of his nature. This is a characteristic, this is an attribute of God to show that it is his nature to be holy and just. 
You know, do we understand that there is love in his justice? The second reason I like this type of a verse is for those people that cut me off on the highway. (laughs) Those people that I want to get even with. I want God's wrath to be poured out right now, Lord, in my timing. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. But oftentimes I have to take those types of thoughts with the beginning of verse 3. Where it says that God is slow to anger. And we'll come back to that thought here in a moment. But you know, when we look at verse two and how it starts off, it says that God is a jealous God. And we know that he's a jealous God because of what it says in the law, right? Exodus 20, verse five, as he's given the 10 commandments, God says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. So this is how Nahum starts his book, and he is wanting to get across right from the start that God is very, very angry. How does that sit with you? Does that make you recoil a little bit to think of God as being angry? If it does, it kind of shows that our understanding of anger needs to change. Because when I think of God being angry, I compare it to my own examples of being angry. And I use that for my understanding. You know, as the kids might be acting up and I'm telling them to stop and telling them to stop and telling them to stop until eventually I lose my cool and I blow up and I explode and angry and then they stop. Two things are happening there. One, I'm being conditioned that I have to yell in order for them to listen. Secondly, they're being conditioned that it's only when dad yells is he being serious and that we have to listen. Neither are right. But that's the type of understanding that we have for anger and that's what we bring in to understanding God and his anger and that's wrong. God is slow to anger. He is patient with us. And I say us here, not just the Assyrians, not just the heathens down the street. He is patient with me, and we have to understand that. His anger is calculated. It is directed. It's not haphazard. It's not careless. He doesn't just lose his temper. His anger is here because of injustices and sin, where judgment needs to happen. And you look at that verse 2. Avenging is listed three different times in that verse. Now, avenging avenging here does not mean getting revenge or getting even. It is retribution. It is giving what is owed. It is justice for what the Assyrians deserve. It is for his adversaries and his enemies. It is directed. And then in verse 3, we see a warning. The Lord is slow to anger. He is great in power, but by no means will he clear the guilty. And the guilty here would be those who reject him. Remember the the jealous nature that God has. It is for his name. He is jealous because there are people that are, are serving and worshiping other gods. He is jealous because of his namesake. And then in verses three through five, you have these examples of power that, that Nahum is describing to show who God is to, so that the people would recognize the power of God and then respond. 
And then you have this great question in verse six. Who can stand before his indignation? Indignation is not really a word that we use too much anymore. But it means extreme anger. It means disdain. It is the heat of his anger, his wrath. You don't want to have this idea that God is just a little bit upset here. That it's just something that can slide under the rug. When I look at this question of who can stand before his indignation, I think of Job as he is confronted by God at the end of Job and and God says, hey, gird your loins because here I come. Face me like a man, get ready because here it comes. I think of Malachi chapter three, verse two, where it says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. You know, oftentimes we like to think that we won't be able to stand before God because of his holiness. Like just again, one characteristic. Have you ever thought about not being able to stand before God because of his love? Because of his mercy? Because of his anger? God is so majestic that we can't even fathom an ounce of his glory. And if you recall, glory means weightiness. It means heaviness. It's pressure. This is a warning to the Assyrians. But God knows that they're not going to repent this time. You know, I've always laughed at Jonah's message to the Assyrians. I love his message to the Assyrians. You know, when you think about the different prophets and their prophecies, how many of them do you actually know? I mean, Isaiah's got a lot of prophecies in it, right? But Jonah, I mean, you can memorize that one. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be no more. That's it. He does the bare minimum and then he goes, sits on a hill. I resonate with Jonah so much sometimes. (laughs) But even with that message... Again, he's speaking to Nineveh, so he's representing the whole of the Assyrian people. They repent. They turn to the Lord. They, they put on sackcloth. But here in Nahum, you have a more detailed truth about who God is. You have a more detailed truth about the warning that is coming, but it's falling on deaf ears. They're drunk on the power that they've accumulated, and they think too highly of themselves. They are prideful, and they're going to be judged because of that. God's anger is going to show. And again, it's measured. Remember, it's never out of control. He doesn't blow his temper. His anger is focused on the particular object of his wrath. You see how Nahum is describing God in this passage and this explanation of his power, the explanation of his anger from verses two through eight. But even within that section, you also have verse seven where he gives hope. And he says that God is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. And you could think, well, it's kind of an odd place to put that statement in there as he's giving this warning. But as he gives the warning, he also gives the message of hope. You know, again, you compare Jonah and Nahum. Jonah doesn't even do that. He doesn't even tell them that God's going to be the one that overthrows them. He doesn't even tell them to repent. He just says Nineveh is going to be overthrown. 
Nahum is at least putting it out there, and he shares that God is patient. So perhaps that some of them could repent, even as he gives this message, because hope can only be found in God. And you know, as I dealt with this part of the passage this week, I had questions. I had questions I think are typical of all of us. Uh, questions like, okay, Lord, I get that we're to be slow to anger, but what, at what point do consequences come in? How long do I need to be patient before I act? At what point as a dad, as a pastor, as a boss, does judgment come down? And what does it look like? You know, how can I be self-controlled in my anger or, or not sin in my anger? Because, man, I can lose my temper at times. And I know it's not right. I know it's not godly. But it happens. And it's interesting. Because this week as I was in prayer with those types of questions, the Lord exposed more of my pride to me. And I want to share that with you this morning to see if some of that resonates. You know, there's times such as this week as I am reading through the Bible and I'm thinking that things in the Bible are there for me to act upon, right? I'm reading this and I gotta put this into play. In reality, I'm thinking like I am God, right? Where it's my duty, it's my responsibility to convey the word of God, to bring this message, to be his mouthpiece and, and by George, they're gonna listen to me. They're gonna, they're gonna hear what I have to say and it's gonna be great and the Spirit's gonna do some great things and, and everything becomes more about me. You know, and it just so happened that as I was preparing for this, I was also preparing the end of Matthew 5 for the youth group. And the last teaching on that point was how you have to love your enemies. That's Jesus' point, love your enemies. So the self-righteousness in me wants to question the word of God. Okay, Jesus, you say to love your enemies, but here in Nahum, God's saying about what's gonna happen to his enemies, about what's gonna happen to his adversaries. It's gonna be anger and wrath. And right now, I'd love for some anger and wrath to come down. But you need to hear this. The anger and wrath is God's role. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not Kurt's. The greatest commandments that we have been given, found in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You shall love others as yourself. Anger and wrath should be so far from our hearts, but too often that's our go-to response. Now, we should have a righteous anger about injustices in this world. But too often, our ideas of injustice are the first world problems. Like I joked about in the beginning, that person that cuts me off on the highway in my nice big vehicles, I drink a $5 coffee, sipping on that, talking on my cell phone while the kids are watching movies in the back, perhaps. Oh, injustice. We make the mistake to think that our anger is the same as God's anger. But God is slow to anger. How slow are we? I guarantee it's not slow enough. We should be about loving others. And what better way to come alongside of someone than to be a witness for the Lord, to give them the warnings of his anger and wrath that will be for his enemies 
at the same time giving hope that he is good, that he is a strong tower, that he is a place of refuge. You know, I cannot, through my anger and wrath, make someone believe. I cannot, through my anger and wrath, make my kids listen to me. Maybe for a small, brief moment in time, I can control what they do, but in their hearts, their hearts are not changed unless they repent of their sin and turn towards the Lord and obey him first and me second. Are we training our kids to follow the Lord or to follow ourselves? And how easy is it for us to tell them to follow the Lord if we're not doing it ourselves? Do we have a do as I say and not as I do type of faith? I mean, how convicting is it for us to see ourselves as a Pharisee? It's convicting to me to think of myself as Moses sitting here pounding on the podium. How many times do we have to bring you water? Oh, you people. It's a complex that pastors struggle with. Pride. Is it convicting for us to see ourselves as the Assyrians and their pride? Is it convicting to see how manipulating we could try to be, whether that's with our anger or our passive aggressiveness, to get people to do what we want them to do? I thank God that he is slow to anger, that he is good, that while I was still an enemy, he sent Jesus to die for my sins. I thank God that he has not forsaken me and that his spirit is still in the process of sanctifying me more and more each day. And I pray that I can continue to be convicted in a lot of these areas. Now very quickly, I want to address some of the concerns of the Assyrians in terms of the two main reasons that they're going to be receiving judgment. One of those reasons is for their pride and another reason is for their cruelty to people. And we'll talk about the cruelty a little bit later in the book. But in verse 11 of chapter 1, we see this first mention of the reason for judgment. This one, um, from, you one from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Now this one is believed to be Sennacherib, who came before Nahum's time, and he was around during the time of the prophet Isaiah. You can look around chapter 36 in Isaiah for some of that context. Um, just a portion of 36 I'll read for us today uh, so that it's fresh in our minds. Beginning in verse 14, this would be an envoy of the king of Assyria speaking to envoys of King Hezekiah of the northern kingdom. He says, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Sorry. For he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given over into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of you his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? 
Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. So this was a message directly from the king of Assyria. And you can see the arrogance within this on full display to discount who God is. It's a sin of pride that captured the hearts of all of Assyria. They were all enamored with this, with this power, and they were drunk on this power, thinking it was all about them. You know, and it's, it's funny to look back and see the similarities of the Assyrians, perhaps to our own lives. You think about how 100 years before, they had repented as a people. And then probably within a generation, they repented of that repentance and returned back to pride and cruelty. Through their first repentance, God withheld his judgment. But pride from the conquests took over their hearts. They had defeated all of these other nations and they were riding high on their power. They were showing their cruelty. They were committing atrocities among the people that they were conquering. And they are now at a point where God says it's enough. He's going to punish them. He is going to wipe them out. Now, of course, we know from history, from reading the Bible, that the Babylonians then come in um, the Persians, the Medes, they help out and they, they are raised up to be against the Assyrians. But we remember that God is slow to anger. He wants people to repent. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. But what we have to understand is that once the sin is exceedingly great, he steps in to judge. His characteristic of being holy, of being just, is shown. And I think that Nahum balances the characteristics of God well. He speaks to the reader about how they can believe in God's love and his goodness, while at the same time being sure of his wrath. And as he's speaking about the wrath and the anger that's going to come down upon the Assyrians, it is also as much of a warning to those who are in Judah, to those who are in captive. He's speaking to those people to make sure that they understand who God is as well. He says that the Lord is good. You look in verse 12, uh, you look in verse 13, and you look in verse 15. As you read through those verses, we want to understand that God is faithful to punish the wicked. The wickedness even in the Israelites. Those who are going to be punished for also worshiping false gods. The northern kingdom is already conquered at this point. So this warning should be in their hearts for those in Judah to not forsake the ways of the Lord because he punishes wickedness. It just may not be in the timelines that we want or that we assume. But it's no reason for them to disregard these warnings. Again, balancing his justice with his patience. You know, our hope, our trust should be spurred on in encouragement as well as we read these passages. For us to fully grasp the goodness of God, we also have to understand his anger towards sin. The punishment that happens because of that. To understand his holiness. To understand what the cross means for us as believers. Sometimes, God's justice, his holiness, is a warning that many of us disregard in our lives. Thinking that, well, he's already died for my sins, so I can continue to do whatever I want to do. Paul says, may it never be so. Today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, harden not your hearts, 
Repent and turn back to him, casting off the foolishness of sin that so easily entangles us, the foolishness of pride, our misappropriated anger. We need to come before him with a humble heart, understanding the power and might of God, understanding more of the characteristics of him who we serve, understanding our own shortcomings, and turning to him for the hope that we need to have whether that's in our relationships or in our personal life. Understanding the times that selfishness and pride take over instead of humility and godliness. We're all guilty. We've all fallen short. We're not all perfected yet. But as we go this road, allow us to lean into him a little bit more. Understanding more of the character of God and who he is not just the ones we like, not just the attributes that make us feel good, but even understanding that sin makes God very, very angry. Let's pray. Father, as we dive in to some of these prophecies and these prophets, Lord, I pray that we can be um, just brought to a new sense of who you are as God, Lord, that you would show us your goodness, that you would show us your awesome power, your majesty, your glory, but Lord, your justice, the anger that you have to the wickedness of people. Lord, I pray that you would convict us of our misappropriated anger. And Lord, that you would soften our hearts Lord, we praise you for your patience and I pray more of it for myself. Lord, in everything that we do, I pray that we can honor and glorify your name. Our actions, our words, may we be good representations of you, all of you, that we would stand against injustices, that we would honor you with not just our lips but our hearts as well and that people would see our good deeds and praise the Father in heaven as we are being salt and light for you so I pray for time this week time to be in your word time to be in contemplative prayer to where your spirit can convict us and that we can draw closer to you through that conviction We thank you for the forgiveness that you have given us through your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we can walk in the spirit in ways that would honor you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.